of all the all the things that you know about history, um, has always been very intriguing. Are we? Are, Anytime, we, are we doing it? Is oh, it we're live. Okay. Yeah, yeah, all we're right, good. Right, right. And uh, but I do uh, I do have to do an intro, and I want you to correct me if I'm wrong because we didn't do a strong green room on this because we don't need to. Right. And uh, I do want to talk about uh, how we're sponsored by Ambi Properties. I'm pretty I'm pretty stoked about that. But today we've got on Frankie Say we've got Mike Scholl. Who is uh, one? I'm one of your biggest fans. Oh, jeez. And I say that a lot. Not trying to embarrass you on national TV here, but uh, you do a lot of different things. And one thing I've noticed about you is, <laughs> so I have a hard time putting a label on you. Yeah. So I don't. Yeah. And you and I are similar. And I hope you don't mind me saying this, no. but uh, I generally don't wear a lot of labels. Yeah. And you don't wear a lot of labels. I don't really own it. I think my my shoes say like Merrill on them, um, but. I don't wear anything that has writing on it. And it's not like I'm like, you know, I mean, I guess I am kind of anti the man, but like, I'm just, I'm not like going out of my way. I just like, I've always just kind of worn like a uniform and like, it's like a solid colored t-shirt and khaki pants. And then usually like a flannel if it's, if, if the weather permits. How many classes did you teach today at senior high? <sighs> six. Yeah. You taught six classes. Yeah. So I teach this year. I have four uh, honors world history hours. And then I have two just regular world history hours. Talked you, about the, the Persian War in ancient Greece today. Oh, wow. Yeah, good stuff. Actually, and yeah, well, uh, we'll get to it, but some parallels between what you said you might want to talk about because, you know, the Greeks, um, they factor into a lot of the stuff that's e even happening today, you know, and I think that's why, like, if you, if you make your way into a world history curriculum, you had to have done something that was, you know, pretty significant. I think the Greeks did. So I, I do want to ask you about this because I've been trying to wrap my head around uh, this topic. So at Muddy River, Muddy River doesn't hardly do any national geopolitics because that's not what the people want around here. They right. want to know about their surroundings. They want to know about the local happenings. Yeah. And Muddy River, I believe, does a really, really good job. Right. No, that's, I mean, that's why I, doing why that. I tune in. You know, it's like I, I want to know what's going on locally. And I think that the people of Quincy would want to know where their tax dollars are going. We have in Quincy, we have an amazing uh, teacher of history. And my opening question to you, Mike Scholl, is from the perspective of Putin, if oh, I had Putin, geez. and if I had Putin here, yeah. why did Putin invade Ukraine? Why, yeah. or excuse me, Ukraine. That's how the, yeah, like yeah, the yeah. super pros say it. <clears throat> And the reason why I the reason why I'm I want to know I mean we can talk about Quincy we can talk about all of these different things sure. we can talk about all the ongoings of Quincy, but one thing that I don't think Quincyans can turn on their TV and good uh, get a good assessment of why Putin thinks he went into Ukraine. Right. Now we're painting him as the bad guy. I'm not saying he's a good guy. I'm saying it is a one-sided thing, and I want to know yeah. if you so you're gonna have to play a role. If you were Putin and you wanted to explain why you started a war, yeah, because we haven't even gotten into why the Americans are fighting a proxy war of right. $150 billion. Right. But why did Putin go in there from his perspective, not yeah. from ours? <clears throat> so I think that um, I think that's a lot of what's going on, like in the world right now, like just like even in like, I mean, I know it's been going on for a long time, but in the last 10 years, you know, it seems like this divide between the right and the left 
you know, in America has gotten really crazy and you really don't know like what to believe anymore. Like information on both sides. And, and I really do mean like on both sides is so weaponized now that it's almost impossible to get like a clear answer on, you know, why is this happening the way that it is? Because if you're someone who's on the side that wants the thing, you view the other side as idiots and trash. And the other side is doing that exact same thing all the time. So it's like, it's almost impossible. And I think that really what we have an issue with in America, like right now, um, that I think is, is fixable, uh, is an inability to put ourselves in other people's shoes, mm. right? Like if I want to understand yeah. the other side, I have to really be able to see things from their perspective and their wants and needs. And so, you know, I think with this issue, like with Russia and Ukraine is, um, you have to be able to see it from both perspectives to really understand that. And so that goes like way, way, way back. Like Ukraine, maybe more than any place, it, I, I cannot think of another place that has changed hands and been a pawn in someone else's scheming more, right? Like this, okay, so like, like to go back. So like Ukraine has like, like in the ancient world, was called the gateway to the steppe, right? So like the steppe is like where, you know, it's, where, it's like where civilization ends and you just have grassland. And so the, the people that live here, like for the most part, are like nomadic pastoralists, right? So like what they do for a living is they raise animals and they move those animals from place to place, like usually kind of like in a cyclical kind of pattern. So they've got like A, B, C, D campgrounds, right? Where their animals can graze and they just kind of move between each one. A side effect of being a nomadic pastoralist is like the other tools that you're sharpening in that arsenal are like how to be a really good raider, you know? And I don't mean like a fan of Notre Dame, but like a, uh, right. that's my, that's my public school dig. Nah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, good uh, one. I like that. But, uh, but you know, how to raid, like, you know, we come into contact with other t tribes. We have lean years. We come back to a, a, a grassland and there's, there's another group of, you know, whatever group of nomadic pastoralists are there. And you've probably heard a lot of these names, like the Huns, the Mongols, the Bulgars, like all these groups. So they get good at raiding. And so like the first big thing that like really changes that area is the Mongols invade. You know, so like for a lot of years, hundreds of years, the Mongols are in charge of Ukraine and most of Russia, honestly, and pretty much everything uh, like moving east from there, the Mongols control. Okay. The thing about the Mongols is this, is that- Are, are the Mongols descendants still there? Yes, but, and, and that's, that's a whole other part of this. Okay. Is that like, so like in a way, because the thing that the Mongols did that I think is like kind of noteworthy is they were like the great assimilators. So they never went into an area and they were just like, we're the Mongols and we're going to be the Mongols and you're whatever you are and you stay that. They immediately would start like a, a great example would be like Kublai Khan. Like Kublai Khan is the grandson of Genghis Khan. He ends up becoming emperor of China. He doesn't keep living in a yurt, right? Which is like their traditional tents. He doesn't keep being a pastoralist and moving around. He moves into the palace. He starts dressing and acting and speaking as someone who has been raised Chinese, right? So they assimilate. And the same thing happens in Ukraine. Uh, you know, and I mean, when we're talking about Ukraine, we're talking about a massively shifting border like over time, right? So the Mongols that are in Ukraine, they're called the Golden Horde. And like they, they start assimilating day one. 
You know, so like they become some completely other thing, you know, if we flash forward, you know, three, 400 years. And now they're like, they're part of the Turks. In fact, most of them convert to Islam, which is going to be another issue that, that springs up. So anyways, if we move forward from that, then like uh, this like Polish-Lithuanian like uh, amalgamation takes them over for a time. You've probably heard of the Cossacks, yes. right? The Cossacks are basically a group that they tried, that the Lithuanians and the Poles tried to turn into serfs. Serfs are like peasant slaves. Like you can't leave the land. You have to stay here. You have to produce anything you want to do. Uh, you have to ask permission. Right. You can't leave, even if you want to. And the Cossacks are like, no. Like the Cossacks are kind of known as being like badasses, you know? Okay. But it gets hairy. So the first, like the first big thing, like if I had Putin here and I was trying to understand from his perspective, is the Cossacks sign a treaty in 1654, and this date is meaningful because it's going oh, so, to come back. So we're going way back. Yeah, but 300 years later, we're going to revisit this same idea because the Cossacks signed this treaty, and the treaty basically says that Russia will help the Cossacks, right? Will help them survive. We'll flash forward 100, 200 years, and now they've completely annexed this place, right? Russia completely is, you know, has, has dominated this place until the 1850s, right? So now we've moved up even more. And in like the 18, I think it's like the 1850s, uh, Russia fights the, the Crimean War. And, and, and a lot of people think, like, if you say the Crimean War, they think, like, this modern thing, right? right? But the Crimean War was a war of basically, like, an alliance of France, and it's, like, the Ottoman Turks, and it's, like, the UK, and it's, like, a few other... Does Putin know his history? Without a doubt. Okay. Yeah, Putin knows his history. Once again, I'm not making, you know... I think uh, Putin is... Uh, is a dictator of like what you would call an illiberal democracy. Like, I think that their elections are probably shams. I'm not trying to insult anybody who's, you know, Russian or whatever, but I think that like the writing is pretty much on the wall there that, you know, he imprisons his enemies. If you speak out too much about, you know, what he's doing, it's, it's problematic, you know? And, and hopefully like, if you're watching, like there can be a little bit of a consensus on this that, you know. What about, okay, so, so now we're in the 1850s. Yeah. How, how do we get right. to 2014? So they lose the war. And this sets Russia and, and, and Crimea gets taken. So they, this sets them on this like breakneck path towards modernization because that was the thing that lost it for them is they weren't modernized. Like another great example of that in history would be like the Perry uh, expedition to Japan. Like Commodore Perry on behalf of the American Navy shows up in Japan and says, Hey, listen, I know you guys are isolationists, but you're going to open up your borders to us. You're going to allow us to trade and refuel here and resupply here. And if you don't, here's what's going to happen. And they basically like open fire on the shoreline and show them the unbelievable might of this entire fleet of not just Navy ships, but like steam powered, painted black naval ships. And so it's very intimidating. And this sets the Japanese on this breakneck path towards modernization and, I mean, I think a lot of historians would say that this is pretty much what leads to, like, their involvement in Pearl Harbor and, and then World War II. So the same thing happens in Russia. And then so we spring forward even more, and that, end, that, that leads us to 1917. Ho hopefully I'm not going too, like, oh, go ahead. too deep dive here. But 1970, World War I is underway, and the Bolshevik Revolution happens in, in Russia. 1917? In 1917. So, like, you know, it, you know, there's a story that basically like Germany knows that V.I. Lenin is going to be the ultimate wrench to throw into the cogs of the Russian machine. And they want Russia out because right now, you know, like they're fighting a two front war. They've got France on one side 
and they've got Russia on the other. And it's just like this completely unsustainable thing. So, um, so they basically, okay, yeah, so the 1970, the Bolsheviks take over and uh, they fight a war with for basically Ukraine. And so this is another big moment. The Ukrainians view this war as a war for their own like personal independence. They view this because they lose. You're talking about the current one. No, the, the, the 19, one, the, the one in, it's like the 1920s. Okay. They view this as a war for their own independence. Russia views this as they are liberating a part of Russia from other people that stole it from them a long time ago. Okay. Does that ring, does that rhyme with today? Yes, because this, what the thread that this sort of shows is the way in which from 1654 and even before, Russia views this very much as not just like their territory, but as a group of people that are very much them. Like we're all mutts, but like in this specific part of the world, like, you know, they've been intermingling for a very long time. So okay. there are lots of ethnic and linguist Russians in Ukraine, obviously. So then the 40s roll around, right? Oh, actually, I digress. So then we have the collectivization of agriculture, which is, which is another big part of this, right? And I know like, I, it seems like I'm going way, way back and it's all like, you know, whatever, but in order, I think, to really understand like the mindset, you gotta kind of walk through this whole gambit of things. So the collectivization of agriculture, like imagine, so today, right, right now, you own a family farm. A year from now, the state owns your farm and you're a day laborer on that farm, wow. right? So they just take it. Wow. Now, the Ukrainians obviously do not like this, right? And so on top of all of that, there's this growing sense of Ukrainian nationalism that's happening during this time because they have been taken over again, right? And so they start to protest mostly against not just the fact that they've taken their agricultural land, but, but more than anything, they start to protest against these insane grain quotas that are being put on them. By now, it's not Lenin anymore. By now, it's Stalin. And it, it's kind of interesting yeah. because, you know, like, so like, these grain quotas are pretty outrageous. They call these people, what are they, what are they the, 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 the Kuzaks, the Kolaks? I'm trying to remember what they call them. It's anybody who owns over like eight hectare acres of land. You're considered like a rich peasant, right? So they start cracking okay. down on this. And when everybody is fighting against these quotas, uh, they basically say, this is the source of this Ukrainian nationalism. We need to crack down on this. And most historians are basically of the consensus that Stalin manufactures a famine that kills in, in Russia and Ukraine, right? That kills like around 8 million people, 5 million of which are in the Ukraine. Okay. So then the Nazis invade. So now it's, it's 42, 43, the Nazis are rolling in. The Nazis are moving into Ukraine? Yes. Okay. So now we switch hands again, right? And so the big thing here is that during all of this Soviet takeover, there's Jewish populations. And, you know, you hear, I think that you hear like the term Nazi like brandied around a lot in this Ukrainian conflict and that, you know, people who are not about the war saying that the Ukrainians are Nazis and blah, blah, blah. At least like there's a big faction in Ukraine of like these Nazis supporting like the Azov battalion and all this stuff. So there was a pretty good sized Jewish population that wanted autonomy. They wanted their own oblast, right? Like, which is just like a province in, in, in Russia is basically what that means. And this is uh, shouted down violently, right? So that by the time the Nazis roll in, a lot of Ukraine is pretty much willing to be 
participants in the Holocaust. And once again, we have another like five million Ukrainians die. So this is like one of those big moments where I feel like as Americans, we have a really hard time wrapping our brains around losing. I think in World War II, the Russians lose like a quarter of their population. A third of their countryside is destroyed. We lose 300,000 people. Right? That's, that's a huge number. That's a major blow in the American mindset. But like one in every like, you know, however many, like I, I've heard one in every 13, I heard one in every seven the other day, I heard a quarter today. To have that many casualties creates something in you where the idea of invasion becomes something that you're not willing to tolerate. And if it happens, you're willing to throw every last man at the conflict in order to stop it, right? So the Soviets, obviously, in 44, they retake Ukraine, okay? And um, the next big, I think, date is what I mentioned earlier, 1654, right? Now it's 1954. This guy named Nikita Khrushchev is on his way up. Nikita Khrushchev is trying to become the next guy, right? And he's meeting opposition, as you can imagine, in the Communist Party, because that's one of the major problems anywhere that converts to communism has, that has a Communist Party, is you have major infighting amongst people that want to be that next top guy. You know, China has experienced it. You know, Russia obviously has experienced it. It's, it's ongoing pretty much everywhere. So in a bold move to get some of the secretaries of the Communist Party in these Eastern Bloc states to come over and support him, he makes this gesture. He says to the Secretary of Ukraine, I will give you Crimea, okay? But this is like, imagine I'm um, a landlord, right? And you rent a house for me. And one day I show up and I say, Frankie, I love you so much, I bought you a couch. But the couch stays with the house, right? So you enjoy the couch. But if you ever leave this house, right, the couch stays here. Okay. So... That's kind of the next big thing. So now we've got a situation where like, okay, flash forward to 91. We're almost, we're almost through this gauntlet of me recounting all this history. In 91, obviously we know the Soviet Union is, is crumbling, right? Yes. The Berlin Wall comes down in 89. Yes. You've got about 300,000 Soviet soldiers on the border ready to face down what is essentially NATO, right? All, all the buddy nations that are essentially NATO and they're, what they want, what NATO wants at this stage in the game is they want to say, look, we want you to go home. We want you to turn Russia into a democracy. If you do that, you don't have to worry about us. We, and, and, and sometimes this is disputed, but I've actually seen documents where they've said this. We will not move one inch. We will not move one inch to the east. Past the German border? Correct. Yeah. Okay. really past the split between East and West. We will not move NATO one inch, okay? Right, and they said the German, they said German border, but like which German border in quotes, right? Exactly. Right, like are we talking about the Eastern or the West? Has NATO moved an inch? They've moved about a thousand miles. They've moved about a thousand miles. Okay. To the point where in former Soviet bloc states like Lithuania, Estonia is the big one, they're literally right on the border. So I think, and I'm not saying that I agree with this. I'm not honestly, like as an American, 
I think sometimes my biggest question is like, I, I understand why Americans want to help an underdog. That's pretty much our genesis, right? Like had the French not gotten involved in the American Revolution and helped us, we're not a country today. Right. It's interesting also to point out though that when France had their revolution, we did not help them. Right. Because we were broke. We were broke from the American Revolution. So we couldn't. We're way more broke today than we were then. You know, way, way more broke. $33 trillion more broke than we were then. So ultimately, I think, I think the Russian mindset here is we've been invaded three times from the East, and it has cost us millions and millions and millions of people. So we're not going to allow that to happen again. I think in the West, we have a hard time conceptualizing that because we're not France, you know, we're not Germany. We don't get invaded very often. It's, it's almost, in, you know, it's, it's very difficult to invade us. But, you know, if we look at times where it was close, if we look at like the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? We didn't like that very much, you know? So, let's, so what happened there? Did, did somebody, did the Soviets, this is during JFK, Right. Put a nuke somewhere. Right. Right. They literally put missiles in Cuba that were pointed at America, trying to strong arm us into playing ball, to standing down. There's a, you know, a litany of reasons as to why. And a lot of people don't understand how close the Americans were to possible nuclear war. Yes. At that time. And I think that this is the thing that gives me real pause in that, listen, I can sit here and for 15 minutes, I can rattle off the history of Ukraine, but ultimately I'm an American and I don't really know that much about it. Like there will be like some professor at QU that will watch this and will write a strongly worded letter to Bob tomorrow saying, your boy's a joke, you know? But this is my minimalistic understanding of this. And so from my perspective is, I think that as an American, yes, I see the desire for freedom in some Ukrainians. But also it's important to point out that it's not all Ukrainians. Like this whole conflict starts with pockets of ethnic and linguist Russians in Ukraine that start this whole thing going. So I don't know the ins and outs of this. I just know that hundreds of billions of dollars of American taxpayers' dollars are going over there. And so... Beyond all of that, like, I respect everybody's opinion. Everybody can formulate their own thing. I don't want thermonuclear war, right? Like, I don't want Mela to grow up in a world. Because, listen, we've got thousands of them, and they have even more. And literally just today, I read something. Like, the, uh, it was some, like their foreign minister, or maybe even a higher position, was like, we are in a war. He said this, like, on record, we are in a war with America. That's a really scary place to be. That's a really kind of terrifying thing to think that the number one most nuclear capable country on earth thinks that they are in a war with the number two most nuclear capable country on earth. They do think, I've read that many times, so it's, it's, really, difficult, um, it's really difficult to try to find out all of the missing pieces of this I mean, it's a war, but right. from our perspective, um, it's more of a conflict in that we are giving money. We're, we're in, in my opinion, we're fighting a proxy war. Yeah, I think that, but I don't know if that's true or not. Right. But I know that our country is giving billions upon billions. I don't know what the number is right now. I think it's somewhere between 100 and 150 billion. I don't know 
what the number is. I, I did hear that we misplaced $6 billion right. the other day, and that $6 billion could have really helped some uh, communities maybe in America. The blo- I, what terrifies me about this whole thing is the blasé nature of people discussing this, right? Like we see it as these talking points on the news. I think it's interesting that we frequently are not seeing things like body count, right? Like unbelievable number of human casualties. Maybe what we should be doing is like more of the Carter approach. You know, maybe we should be brokering verbal exchange, you know, as opposed to Con, like armed conflict. I've, I've read multiple times that the Russian leader um, has, t- tell me if I'm wrong, because I don't mind being wrong, that the Russian leader, by, by the way, we are not Russian apologists. No. We're, we're not against people who fly the Ukrainian flag right. in, in their profile pic. We're having well, a and, and discussion. And let me say, like, I, like, as an American, like, I do believe very much in the idea that democracy should be by the consent of the governed. I think if like a group of people want to break away, if Texas wants to break away, they should be allowed to do so. Like I'm not a, I'm not a pawn in some country's game. You can't just hold on to me and use me because I'm useful. Like if everybody in this area says, we don't want to be a part of this thing anymore. I think that's very clearly what democracy is all about. And you should be allowed to do that. Like I believe in maximum freedom for human beings. Um, and I believe that for the Ukrainians that want to be free, and I believe that for the Russians that want to protect against what they see as, uh, you know, probably like an existential threat, you know? So like, yeah, uh, I, I'm very conflicted about it too. And I, and I just want, I, I want people to formulate um, an educated response as opposed to just a list of talking points that they see on the news, you know? So you mentioned the word democracy. Right, yeah. Um, and I've heard multiple of uh, in national politics there are these there's these men and women that fight for nominations in these political parties and one side will will say that the other side is a threat to democracy right. and i hear the word democracy and yeah. we are a, a democracy so i'm going to ask the history teacher oh. from senior high uh do we live in a democracy <laughs> okay yeah we talk about this actually in my class uh, sometimes um you know, like obviously on paper, yeah, you know, like that's the way that it's supposed to work. There was a study, I'm trying to remember what it was. It was like, um, it was like Princeton and Northwestern got together, like two guys, Giles and, uh, oh geez, Giles and Page, I think is who it was. And they did this study and it was like, what style of government is the United States actually? And the answer was that essentially we're, we're an oligarchy. That doesn't mean that like the, 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 the processes of democracy are not in place. But it means that maybe like once these politicians get elected, they're not really listening to me anymore. They're listening to very wealthy and influential individuals and corporations. I'm not saying that's the case. Um, I'm saying that that's what this Princeton and Northwestern study said, right? Can you, so as a, as a history teacher, can you make a differentiation between oligarchy sure. and constitutional democratic republic sure sure what well so so i've used the term oligarchy before in talking about these kinds of things but i think the i think the google answer is democratic republic i think of an oligarchy no just is the united states is a 
I've heard. I, I see I've, this. I've heard, I see this right talking point all the time that really makes me chuckle. <laughs> okay. Where they're like, where people will be online and they'll be like, "We're not a democracy. We're a constitutional republic." Well, a constitutional republic is a subset. That's like me saying, "I'm not a musician. I'm a guitar player." Right? Like, you're both. Right? Like, a constitutional okay. republic is a form of democracy. An oligarchy just means ruled by a few wealthy and powerful individuals. Actually, it goes back to like the first time that I teach this in my class, I teach it with regards to ancient Greece. Because it, in, in ancient Greece, we've got a number of different political styles going on, right? We have democracy in Athens, which is like, you know, I don't know if it's the first time, but it's one of the first times that democracy, it's definitely like the most successful Was that a, dire one. a direct democracy no, in Athens? No, not in Athens. Actually, Athens actually, like, for as much as we talk about them as being, like, this educated, like, enlightened thing, and we talk about the Spartans as being the opposite, Spartans, uh, like, your average Spartan has had much more of a say in the day-to-day. -day. Women had more equality in Sparta. In Athens, you had to be basically, like, a wealthy male. And so, you know, it's like the vast majority of human history. You had to be a wealthy male, and then you could participate in, in the democracy. Athens, Greece in general, lends itself really well to democracy because, like, if you think about, like, the way, you know, governing works, if we're Inuit and we're up above the Arctic Circle and we have to have a meeting of the leaders, right, we're not doing it outside. It's 30 below zero. So we're going to get in the, the biggest structure we have and we're going to build a fire and we're going to have a meeting. How many guys can fit in this? Ten, right? So we've got a very limited number. Greece is beautiful right? Beautiful weather year round. So I think what a lot of people think in terms of like why democracy develops there is you get a lot of people standing around outside and they're leading this thing and everybody else kind of starts showing up, right? And you know, humans, like I just experienced this, like I saw someone in the parking lot, you know, and I like made eye contact with them and we gave each other like a, you know, it's like, hey, I don't know who you are. I'm not sure if I trust you, but hey, you know, and I thought about how much we communicated just with our eyes in that moment. Like humans really have that, you know, we really have that thing where I can, I can shoot you a look. Like if we're out or something, I can shoot you a look and you kind of know what I mean, you know? Right. So you've got all these people standing around and they're doing that very human thing. They're going, oh yes, I agree with that idea. Or, oh no, that's terrible. This is kind of the beginning of democracy. You know, people participating in that, even if they haven't been asked to participate, and you know how politicians are. They want to please. So when they see everybody going, oh, no, then they're like, that's a terrible idea. You know? So it's really, it's like the beginning of, of um, you know, of pandering also, you know? Do you think, knowing what you know about history, and so you, you, to, you talked about serfs. Yeah. Um, and when I think of serfs, I think of the feudal system. Yeah. I think of... Uh, the, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. I think of let them eat cake. Oh yeah. I think of all, so I'm not a history buff. I mean, I can, I can always talk to you about it. Yeah, I more mean, than most, I think. You know more no, than well, most. Well, that's a nice thing to say. It's, yeah. not, it's not, not, say, not saying much maybe, except uh, for your students know a lot. To me it is. Because, <laughs> because you're teaching them. Yeah, I hope. But so in terms of uh, what's happening right now, do you think, and I don't want to get you in trouble, and you can yeah. pass on this right. if you want. You can say pass, hard pass. Do you think it is in the interest of the U.S. government, the feds, to kind of like direct the media and tell them, say, hey, let's start fighting 
uh, like a class warfare. Let's start talking about the race warfare. Right. Let's start throwing these little obstacles in the way to keep them from looking at the debt, to keep them at looking at some of the things that we're doing. Like if, if the feds want to misplace $6 billion right. to send to Ukraine, right. instead of that being like a headline news, I mean, I don't think, I don't even, I don't think any uh, media org, like especially legacy media, right. is going to pay much attention to that. I think they're going to throw more, um, I don't know. Do you, do you think that the government throws things in our way for us to fight and nibble and fight over a piece of bread to... So, I, like, I don't want to say... And I'm not saying conspiracy theory. I'm, yeah. I'm saying, because, I mean, all conspiracy theories are true, Mike. Listen. <laughs> I'm kidding. I think that one of the big things that's definitely happened over the past 50 years is this idea of conspiracy theory has really been like drawn up to make it to, to discredit fringe ideas. Okay. But sometimes fringe ideas are right, you know? So like, I, I don't think that it's crazy or fringe or conspiratorial thinking to say that a lot of interested parties, whether it be the federal government or whether or not it just be very powerful individuals and corporations, are involved in the information machine. So like, you know, like, I, and I, we talk about this like in my class sometimes, like this idea that like, I didn't get my first cell phone until I was 24, right? Not because I was a Luddite or something, but because nobody had a cell phone. Like, like the joke I always tell is, yeah, people had uh, cell phones and pagers before that. They were called doctors and drug dealers, right? <laughs> that was it, right? So I got my first cell phone when I was 24. It's 2004, you know, it's like the Nokia brick. You know, I still can remember like the, the ringtone. This age that I'm talking about is what I would call the information age. I think the age that we're in now is the post-information age. All the information that you could possibly want is out there, but you can't trust any of it, right? And, you know, students have a real hard time, you know, like they're looking for information on a topic that we're talking about. How do you trust it? Like even storied legacy websites, dot orgs, you know, it's like, can I really say, yes, that's 100% correct? When oftentimes, like even from a historical perspective, it's not, you know, it's not like they're just, they're boiling things down to their essence, you know? And so it's very easy, regardless of what side of the aisle that you're on, to boil things down to an essence of your liking, you know? So like I can take any topic and I can create for you talking points on both sides that will suit that group. Where do your students get their information? You know, I mean, is there a place that you as a, as a teacher can direct them to? So when I was in school, We'd go to the library, right. we'd fish through the Dewey Decimal System, right. we would find books, yeah. we would find periodicals, microfish, yeah. we'd go through the whole thing. Where do your students I wish I could get say, their information? I wish I could say that this was a new phenomenon. Actually, I wrote my master's thesis on revisionist history. This has been going on forever. Like, oh. you know, they say, like, you know, the victors are the authors of history, you know? Yeah. They write history. Uh, and that's, you know, that's every country on earth. That's every place that you have government. So I think like the best thing that you can do, like, like when I come someplace, when I wake up in the morning and I want to read the news, what I try and do 
is I try just not to exist in an echo chamber, right? Like I don't just open up my Twitter, which like Twitter does like um, the for you, right? And like, I'll be looking at my Twitter and I'll be like, oh man, I'm really like, I'm going down this this one path, aren't I? Because I can tell by the for you, you know? And it'll be all this stuff that's like, oh, that's very, and if I just listened to my for you, I would turn into an extremist, you know, like I would start to believe that everybody on earth felt the way that I did. So I think the key is just seeking out alternative opinions. I don't do this anymore because I feel like these two particular websites have changed, but I used to read the Drudge Report and the Huffington Post. Oh, you know, and I would go to these two and I would see what they were saying about the same topic. You know what I find now? They're not even reporting the same issues. Like what is on one will not even be on the other. It won't even exist right. on the page. Right. I feel like Drudge has kind of come to the left a little bit, honestly. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So I, they're not good examples anymore. For sure. But definitely, like I will try and seek out some dissenting opinions, and I hope, like as a, I'm not a historian, but as a a, a fan of history, I like to think that the truth always lies somewhere in the middle and that you need to seek out dissenting opinions in order to find the truth. And you should find educated people who feel this way and educated people who feel this way and hear what they have to say. And then you can kind of formulate, like going back to the Russia thing, like, man, I don't have the answer to that question. I don't know who's right. I don't know if Russia or Ukraine is right, but I know that both sides not listening to each other and everybody existing in an echo chamber is bad for the whole world. Like, I don't want war like we don't man like we can't do it again you know what i mean like if we do your standard of living is going to fall considerably it's not 1939 you know it's not like oh this war is going to pull us out of a you know a hard time we're already in a hard time this is not going to help it's going to hurt you know and i don't want that i don't want that for me more than anything i don't want that for mela yeah so this idea of of can you imagine if the media gave a breakdown of of Putin's side and the, the Russian side and the American side right. on, on every single thing. It's yeah. kind of like um, you can take any topic, like for example, like immigration is in the news right yeah. now. And you've got uh, on the super, super left, you've got C.K. Lewis, who I think is a hilarious comedian. He's saying- Louis C.K. Louis, Louis yeah, C.K. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, that's how much yeah. I know about Louis. Well, he C- was out of the. C- he was C-K. he was out of it for a minute there because he needed to be out of it for a minute. He <laughs> he needed to take so. a deep breath and like reevaluate. Yeah. I'm not mad at him. I'm just like, yeah, you got to. You know, right. You're out. Yeah. Louis C.K. Thank you. Um, I saw a video clip. I didn't read it. Yeah. So one of the things like that's really big with me is if I see something in print, and they say so and so said, yeah, no. I right. want to see the video. I want to see, I mean, the just, context. just the show context. me the context. Right. Show me that the unedited version. That's why I like. There will form. probably be people who will take this podcast and they will cut up little snippets of me saying things and they'll be like, yeah, they're going to, yeah, they're, he's a monster. You know? Yeah, they're going to cut it up like you yeah. and Joe Rogan. They're going to like say, right. he said this and he didn't yeah, say yeah, yeah, that. Yeah. But uh, I think that uh, Louis CK recently said, he goes, you know, open up the borders. Like America is, is we're always trying to raise our quality of life. We're trying to extend our life expectancies. But you know what? You know, people are trying, like, are they're being sequestered in this small area 
and you need to open up the borders and that's going to cause a lot of pain in the short term. But as the waves slosh out back and forth, it'll bring down all the ships and we'll kind of yeah. be in the, by the way, anybody who's listening to this needs to watch the video and not take my word for it. Right. Right. But which kind of segues into this idea of when your when your students watch the news, because I mean, some of them are younger. Some of them are four. I mean, fourteen to eighteen, thirteen to nineteen. Somewhere my, my in that range. My kids are usually fourteen and fifteen because I just teach ninth grade. Okay, so fourteen. Yeah, so it's pretty much just yeah, oh, wow. fourteen, fifteen year olds. Yeah. Okay, wow. So yeah. you teach six classes a day in yeah. that age group? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's a lot. <laughs> it's all right. So when I actually you, like it. Yeah. Yeah. I like that age group. They're still like moldable. You know, <laughs> they haven't like completely made their mind up about things. So it's like you know, there's still some. But it, keep going. So. When you do, you ever in your class tell them these things that if you hear something, yes. if you see something, you have to weigh that. Yes. You have to take a look at both sides. Do you push that? Yeah. What do you want for those students? Well, because at the I, end of the year, we, we do talk in my class just about this being like the post-information age, and you really can't trust anything. I think like there's this this tendency if you're like a if you're like very strong, like I'm on this side, which is not really how I am. I kind of like view both the like the edges of this whole thing as being like dangerous. If if you're really like you know if you're really on the right, you know, you need to be aware that there's a, there's a high probability that you're just in your own echo chamber, and like you're just surrounding yourself with people that feel the way that you feel. I mean, you think about your high school experience, like all these cliques, you know. Like when you see people like walking down the hall and they're walking down the hallway with people that look just like them, that dress just like them, that act just like them, the danger in that is that you're in an echo chamber. So you need to get out and you need to experience other positions and other ideas. And then you can form this kind of well-rounded view of the world. So that's, that is what I push is just like, like you're saying, don't ever just assume that because you hear something or you read something, no matter how credible the source, that it's good. You should weigh in on that for yourself. I think that that's a kind of a key aspect of the reality that we currently live in, which kind of terrifies me in the divisiveness that we have going on. It used to be that like if you and I were diametrically opposed, we would go out and we would have a beer and we would hang out and it would be no problem. Yep. But like I have friends that have completely written me off for hmm. stances that I've taken on this or that and they're not even that extreme. You know, but just if you don't tow this line, and this is both sides equally, if you don't tow this exact line, if you don't follow these exact talking points, you're scum, you know, and that scares me. I feel like, you know, like the American experiment is one of the hardest things because, and this is going back to your migrant question, heterogeneous societies, you know, societies that are made up of lots of different groups of people are the hardest to govern, right? And that's always been the American thing, right? Like lots of different people from lots of different places and we have to take into, a, into consideration all of these opinions. So when we start to break from that seriously and we start to like, you know, exist within these echo chambers, I think it becomes really kind of dangerous um, and goes against that American idea of like everybody's opinion is, is valid. You know, everybody gets a little bit of a say, but we have to listen to all these ideas. My last question for you is going to be a segue into music. Oh, okay. So when I, I have to tell you a funny story. I don't know if you remember the very first time we met, but I'm going to tell you 
it was at Scott Mittendorf's wedding. <laughs> yeah, okay. And I, I think I was single, and I was talking to, <laughs> I was talking to a girl, and Carrie Mittendorf came over to me, and she goes, Frankie, stop talking to her. That's Mike's girlfriend. <laughs> And I don't know who this girl is. Super nice girl. I've no. I, I couldn't pick her out of a lineup. Wait, Just, she wasn't my girlfriend. She, either either she was there with you on a date. Oh boy. But I it wasn't. So. What year it, is this? This when would when did Mindorf? I don't know. Get married? <laughs> so long. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, like, I mean, it might have been my ex-wife. I don't know. I, it wasn't. Know? Yeah, it wasn't. Mm. No, it wasn't. It was not. I don't know. I would think that Carrie would know. She would know. Carrie? Like I'm gonna. Yeah, Carrie. Carrie, <laughs> do you know? Uh, yeah, I just, so since I've met you, and so this is a question about music. Yeah. So s since I've met you, I have gone to multiple TriPoint Paradox shows. And if anybody who doesn't know, Mike is the, the uh, part of the original TriPoint Paradox band yeah. uh, that there's going to be a lot of people who listen to this. And some will know who that band is and some will not. Sure, but sure, yeah. uh, without, without defaming anybody else in town, I mean, I love Fielder. I love anything that Rodney Hart does. I love, like, I love so many bands in this town. And if I'm not mentioning you, I, I'm sure I love you. But TriPoint Paradox for me is a big deal. You can still find TriPoint Paradox on Spotify. I have all of your albums. We play them. Um, Thanks. Uh, big deal. You are currently with Gypsy Tango Foxtrot. I am, yeah. And you've got some incredible band members. I mean, yeah, I think, like, the best you know some of the best at least in town you know yeah so i mean you've got uh you've got megan peters yeah singing and playing oboe which is kind of a rarity yeah not the clarinet no but the oboe, the oboe. megan brian so graph on violin brian Hol brian holes graph on violin yep uh, uh uh big a alex sanders on uh on the bass christian wingerter on electric guitar yes yeah that's the group and it's an amazing band thanks and people love your band yeah, it's so been much. A good, a good reaction. Huge reaction. Yeah. And you guys, you guys will do something to where you guys will play some music that sounds like you're walking down like French Quarter Fest that's, in New Orleans. Yeah, yeah. Like that's, that's so we, we started out as like a, like there's a subset of jazz, like a genre of jazz that's oftentimes called gypsy jazz. And it's basically just like emulating the playing of my, probably my favorite guitar player of all time, which is this guy named Django Reinhardt. And so, you know, it's like, it's, it's like musette, French uh, music, and like, you know, Western jazz all kind of coming in. And then like, like some elements of like the gypsy movement, which is like music from India and the Middle East all coming together. And so we started doing just that. And then you know, like we kind of realized that like, it's kind of a, a niche thing, you know, like there wasn't a, like people enjoyed what we were doing, but it didn't have the, you know. So we kind of started to branch out and do other stuff. I think now what we do is we take songs some, we do some originals but we take popular songs and we try and put them in a style that they previously weren't you know like a flamenco version of this or a, a jazz version of that or a bluegrass version of you know whatever and we kind of try and make it that way and we do a lot of mashups you do yeah so we'll take this song and this song and we'll you know and the lots of plot twists in your mashups so you will yeah. kind of sample something we think you're going in a certain direction right. and then you come in from another yeah. angle and so you, uh, so GTF, Gypsy Tango yeah. Foxtrot, you play right. a lot. Um, everybody walks away. Everybody, I'm telling you this, not just as a fan, but as a more of a, 
like an objective look at like, okay, what is happening? Right. Everybody walks away from your performances as, wow, that was refreshing. That was awesome. Didn't see that coming. That's awesome. It's beautiful. Uh, you worked on a project a long time ago called The Custom of the Sea. Yeah. I still have that. Yeah, thanks. It's uh, solo album. I'm working on another solo album right now. Okay. Do you have a name yet? I don't have a name for the okay. album, but I'm sending right now. I'm sending tracks off to people for them to contribute. So, Big A, the bass player in our group, is is doing some stuff. Um, uh, Brian Holscraft laid down a bunch of violin, like built up basically like like orchestras out of him. And I sent some stuff to Jamil Mahmood, uh, who's living in L.A. on the West Coast, and he is laying down some guitar right now. And it's so shout out to it's Jamil. Obs- it's obs- can it's can we do a shout out to Hank? Dude, oh. Hank will definitely, definitely, definitely be on it. Megan Peters will be on it too. I'm sure I'll have Christian on there. Okay. Yeah. So I'll have a lot of like local musicians, you know. So thank you for the music. Thanks. Thank you for educating the youth. <laughs> thank you for telling me about uh, Putin's, like the whole history of Ukraine. Yeah. And I know that we could talk for hours, but yeah. uh, we're done. All right. Well, thanks, hey. buddy. Yeah. Ambi Properties is Quincy's largest apartment rental company with hundreds of units available. They offer short-term and long-term rentals with one up to four bedroom apartments. AMB Properties meets the needs of its tenants with care, compassion, and a quality of service that exceeds expectations. AMB Properties also has a convenient tenant app for you to do your payments or make repair requests. Give them a call today. A&B Properties, 217-919-8080, Quincy.